I'm Heather McGough, and today you'll hear my story on San Francisco People. I'm Frank Garza, and welcome to San Francisco People. I'm really excited about today's show with Heather McGough. She has a great story to tell, and I can't wait to share it with you. But first, I want to spend a few minutes talking to you guys about what took me so long to get another episode out there. Right after my last podcast, I headed to Tanzania, Africa to attempt a climb of Mount Kilimanjaro. It was one of the most challenging and grueling weeks of my life, but not for the reasons you might think. Physically, I actually handled the mountain all right. It was really the mental challenge that proved the toughest. First of all, the conditions were a lot more difficult than I had expected. I was cold for seven days straight. September was supposed to be the driest month of the year on the mountain, but instead it rained, hailed, and snowed while I was there. And then there was this constant building pressure and anxiety I felt, wondering what it would be like on summit day and if I would make it. Even though I felt like I was in pretty good shape and was feeling good, you just don't know what's going to happen once you get above 17,000 feet. And so as we continued to climb, the pressure and anxiety continued to build, and never was it more intense than night five as I laid in my tent at Barafu Camp, 15,000 feet above sea level. For five days, we had pushed up the mountain, and that night, at three o'clock in the morning, we would wake up and try to summit Kilimanjaro. The outside of my tent was covered with snow, the temperature outside was below freezing, and the wind was howling. I was inside wearing every dry piece of my clothing, in my sleeping bag, zipped up all the way to my chin, and there I laid, not moving, not reading a book, not listening to any music, just laying there in the dark, staring at the top of my tent, and thinking about the climb ahead. When 3 a.m. arrived, I threw together all my gear, left my tent, and joined my group for breakfast. There were seven of us, including myself. There was Hillary and Dave from Denver, Sujata and Andrew from LA, Elizabeth from Florida, and my new mate, Andy, from England. We were climbing with a trekking company called Climb Killy. They had put together a team of 32 people. Yes, 32 people to get us to the top of the mountain. So what were these 32 people doing? Well, first, there were 19 porters carrying all of our gear, all of their own gear, and then all of the supplies we would need on the mountain. There was a head cook, and he had two staff helping him out. There was two grounds crew, so to speak, who set up all the tents, tore them down, and managed that entire area, making sure it was always secure. And there was even a toilet engineer. Yes, we had a toilet carried up the mountain and set up at every camp. But don't get any illusions of any of us sitting on there, reading the morning paper, checking sports scores, and having an enjoyable experience. No, it was far, far from that. And then we had four guides, one lead guide and three assistant guides. It was only our four guides, good luck, God bless, Imani, and Natiji, 
who would join us on the summit attempt that morning. The 11 of us left camp at 4 a.m. in total darkness. Fortunately, the bad weather had subsided. The skies were clear, full of stars, and it was really a beautiful night. Up ahead, we could see the dark mass of Kilimanjaro. Now, most of the climbers had left camp at midnight so that they could reach the summit at sunrise. And we could see a line of their headlamps heading up the mountain. It literally looked like the headlights of hundreds of cars driving up a highway, but without any sound whatsoever. I'll never forget that image. We hiked for about two hours in the darkness and then witnessed an incredible sunrise halfway up the mountain. The climb was long. We moved at a really slow pace, but we were making progress step by step. Now, it's always a great feeling when you're attempting something difficult and that moment comes when you know you're going to do it. That moment for me came at 18,000 feet. Our guide had pointed out that we could see Stella Point, which was the most difficult part of the mountain to reach. I saw Stella Point with my own eyes, realized that my body felt good, my spirits were high, and that was the moment I knew I was going to make it to the top. The anxiety and the pressure had lifted. I thought of my family and friends and how I couldn't wait to share the story with them. It was an emotional moment for sure. And the rest of the climb for me was really a celebration. That morning, Saturday, September 6th, shortly after 10 o'clock, we reached Uro Peak, the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest point in Africa, 19,341 feet. All seven of us had made it to the top together. Six days earlier, we had gotten in a van without knowing one thing about each other. But for the next six days, we ate every meal together, hiked every step together, and became a close-knit group. Now let's move on to today's show. Heather McGough is here to tell her story and what she loves about San Francisco. I met Heather about four years ago when she was the deputy director for City of Dreams. City of Dreams is a volunteer-based organization serving young people living in San Francisco's low-income and public housing communities. I had joined City of Dreams as a mentor and met Heather at my first Super Saturday event with the kids. Now, these events always start with all of the kids and mentors gathering around in a circle, and the person leading the event that day stands in the middle and talks about the different lessons for the day. And as you can imagine, these kids have a hard time focusing and standing still during the talk. I remember Heather walking around the outside of the circle, arms crossed, slowly strolling, eyes like lasers, watching every single movement of every kid and making sure they were staying in line. Every one of those kids would glance over their shoulder when Heather passed behind them. They'd stand up a little straighter, quiet down, because they knew Heather was not someone to mess with. Hell, I was looking over my shoulder too. We all were. Heather had high expectations for everyone. She was tough, but it was tough love. She was trying to make all of us better. And while being tough and assertive when she needed to be, she was always warm, compassionate, and genuine when dealing with everyone. 
I was always impressed with her balance and the way she was able to walk that fine line. After City of Dreams, Heather moved on to start Urbanity Events in 2010. Urbanity Events is an event production company which specializes in producing high-tech and startup conferences, speaker series, and launch parties in the Bay Area and beyond. In a short time, Urbanity Events has grown into a very successful company. They've hosted events such as Future Energy and the Lean Startup Conference. Their events will sometimes host as many as 1,700 attendees. Heather has continued to stay active in the nonprofit world with several projects, and she is currently starting up a company called Adoptful, aimed at helping hopeful parents determine their best path to adoption. Heather has lived in San Francisco for about 10 years. She lives in North Beach and couldn't wait to share her favorite spots in her hood and throughout the city. So let's go talk to Heather. So was it a small town in Indiana that you were from? Um, you know, I wouldn't say super small town. It's um, right near, um, it's called Elkhart. It's right near uh, South Bend, which is where Notre Dame is. Oh, okay. So um, there was some excitement there. But yeah, I mean, I grew up from across the street from like a cornfield. So, okay. Um, we'd have we'd have corn wars. <laughs> we'd run around and try yeah. to help each other with ears of corn. What did your parents do? What type of work were they in? My mom is um, a teacher for um, children with learning disabilities, and my father is in sales. And so, um, she is the sweet, kind, patient one. And um, I feel like I probably have a little bit more of my dad in me where it's sort of like the um, outgoing, like, tell it how it is. But also, like, he's a big teddy bear. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, Frank, every time I see you, I give you a hug. It's like I hug everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting because it seems like your career kind of straddles both of those um, things you just mentioned about your mom and dad. You've done a lot of nonprofit work. Now you've started your own company. Do you think that combination of your mom and dad has rubbed off on you? Oh, and that's why totally. you took that path? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always said, I think since the age of I don't know, 12, when I read my first probably John Grisham book, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to be this type of lawyer, this type of lawyer. And then in college, I... Um, decided I wanted to be a public interest attorney. So you went to college at not nearby Notre Dame? Nope, I went to Indiana University. Okay, and how was that? I loved it. I studied um, double major, psychology and criminal justice, and um, just a really great experience in college. Um, I loved all school, elementary, middle school, high school. I just, I love learning. Um, to this day, I, it's an addiction. I, I think I've said if I ever win the lottery, I'm going to just go to school for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. But um, I, I studied abroad uh, in Australia, and I really enjoyed that. And I know you yourself have done a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. And um, I came back for my senior year, and um, I decided that you know, I'd like to do public interest law, but I grew up in this sort of middle, upper class home with, you know, not a lot of, um, I guess, challenges, I'd say, and um, not a lot of experience working with the populations that I would be um, serving. And so I said, well, I'm just going to put law school off 
and I'm going to join AmeriCorps. And that's going to help me in two different ways. One, I'd be living off of a stipend, and so I wouldn't go to restaurants or go to the mall or do all these things that kids my age were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And two, I would be um, working with and experiencing the um, challenges that some of these low-income populations face. Um, and so that's what I did. And I moved to Florida, and I, I didn't know anyone. Um, and I lived in a little town called Lake Worth. And then I worked um, at an alternative school, and I was mentoring, advising, and tutoring youth, um, teenagers, mainly black males who had been in trouble with the law. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that direct service type work. And so I, at that point, you know, I finished a year of that, and there was some culture shock in leaving AmeriCorps and Um, being done with that part of my life not just because like I walked into a mall and was very overwhelmed by all the things people could buy or right (laughs) into a grocery store and like (laughs) I have a paycheck again I can actually buy food you know but um just it really opened my eyes to a lot of things so at that point in my life I needed to make a decision on what my next steps were okay and what'd you decide and how'd you make that decision Well, I decided I needed more time to decide. Okay. (laughs) So I moved back to mom and dad's for about eight months and did a little bit more nonprofit work working with um, adult English language learners. And I met, you know, folks who were just, you know, maybe born here who just never learned to read or write to, I remember a young girl from Rwanda to um, a lot of... um, immigrants from Mexico. I mean, it was just a whole range of folks. And it just sort of affirmed what I wanted to do was more direct service work. So I told dad, dad, I don't think I'm going to be a lawyer anymore. (laughs) Um, Did he have, was it always like his like hope or kind of dream? Well, his father, my papa, was a lawyer, an incredible okay. one. And he um, was somebody we all admired very much. Right. And so I think part of that enthusiasm from my dad came from um, seeing in me what he saw in my papa and his father. Um, and so anyway, he was he was fine with it. You know, whenever I've wanted to move somewhere across country, across the world, do whatever, both my parents have been very supportive and they just know at the end of the day, she's going to do whatever the hell she wants to do anyway. So we might as well just like support her on it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So So you told him that you made the decision. I'm going to stick in the public service, nonprofit sector. So then what'd you go do from there? Well, I need to decide where I wanted to live. And so I thought, hmm, well, I've been to San Francisco and it reminds me of Sydney, Australia, you know, with the bay and awesome people and I thought I'll just move there for a year or two and you know there's lots of nonprofits in San Francisco this will be great so lucky for me two of my buddies from college um, both incredible guys musicians um, artists uh, they said we'll move out there too let's all three of us go and then um, Connor his his girlfriend Elliot decided to join us as well so I moved out um, packed up the U-Haul truck we picked up tons of instruments and a piano in Chicago and made our way to uh, to San Francisco, almost dying on the way, I think, because the brakes kept going out, you know, the Sierras. <laughs> oh, okay. And um, to the point where the engine shut off. It was very scary. We thought we were going to have to take one of those runaway truck ramps. 
And we were like, I always see those on the way back from Tahoe, and I'm like, I wonder how often those get used. Yeah. <laughs> and we're amped up on Mountain Dew. And yeah. We're, you know, driving through. Yeah. So it was once we got here, I remember my buddy Josh and I said, we deserve to live in California. Yeah. We deserve this. So I settled in. Um, Josh and Connor and I got a place in the outer Richmond of San Francisco, and that's, um, as you know, near the beach. Right. And what year was this? This was in 05. Okay. 2005. Yeah. And so I first got a job at um, a nonprofit in Berkeley. Okay. And I was tasked with um, folks. Um, so there were folks who were on their last leg of welfare, and they were about to be kicked out of the system. So it was my job to help find them a job and so that was um, figuring out their strengths and helping coordinate what classes they should um, join in order to get a certain type of job and I really loved the work it was Mm -hmm. very meaningful and I did that for maybe nine months or so until I was approached um, with another opportunity and that is one you're very familiar with uh, City of Dreams right yeah I want to talk about that and I've always liked Marty Higgins' story about how that organization started. Um, can you share that story and then what City of Dreams does? Yeah, I'd love to. So I was introduced to two guys. Um, one was in tech, Tony Wilbur, and the other a commercial real estate guy, um, Marty Higgins. And they had a big vision. Um, they had this idea of a mentorship program in Bayview Hunters Point. And the vision was to end the generational poverty cycle in um, this low-income community of San Francisco, where only one in four kids were graduating high school. Uh, The leading cause of premature death was homicide, um, and exposure to drugs and gangs and violence was the norm. And so they had this mission of building brighter futures through youth development. And so that fit, of course, perfectly with my values and what I had already worked on in AmeriCorps. Uh, Since both of those guys worked full-time, they were looking for someone to come on board. Um, And so there I was. I was the first full-time paid employee. Um, Worked there for uh, just about five years. And our programs and staff grew through the years. We went from serving one low-income housing community to five. Uh, We went from a mentorship program to thoughtfully matching mentors with kids one-on-one, which you, of course, did yourself. Um, We had a full curriculum for experiential learning events, um, after-school programming, and even a junior mentor program where youth could begin to give back as they grew older. And so some things that I learned over the years were um, I learned how to earn trust in a community that... um, doesn't hand out trust very easily and for good reason because a lot of folks um, sometimes our programs come in there um, and they say they're going to do something and then a year or two later they're not there anymore so what I learned was you got to show up in the community you got to keep your promises keep calling knocking on doors if they don't call you call them back don't take stuff personally yeah um I never experienced any fear there. Most of the community, as you know, consists of really great people, people that meet you and know you, and they know you're there to do good for the kids, and they respect that. Even members of the gangs like generally respect that. And so, um, and another thing is people want jobs. You know, we ourselves, City of Dreams, work to employ community members, and this is and should be a really important value um, for any community program, in my opinion. 
Do you think a lot of people in San Francisco realize those neighborhoods are out there? You know, because I think about when I got involved with City of Dreams, um, if you would have asked me before that, and I had been living here maybe for like, you know, less than a year, so I still didn't know a lot about um, the city. I would have told people there are no bad neighborhoods in San Francisco. You know, maybe the Tenderloin, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of like drug problems there. But um, I felt like a lot of people don't even know the Hunter's Point Bayview areas exist and that we have neighborhoods like that. Was that your experience? Oh, yeah, I would I would agree. Um, you know, first of all, as tra- San Francisco is just a very transitional city um, and a lot of folks never experience going to those neighborhoods. Maybe they'll go near them because they were going to Candlestick Park for a Niners game. Right. But, um, you know, they just, they don't know they're there. And maybe if they do know they're there, they're told, don't go there. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it's interesting to think that um, it's, a, it's a part of our community that's been a part of my life and your life. Um, for a long time now that a lot of folks um, don't know about. And a lot of those kids haven't left the neighborhood. I mean, we would talk to kids who hadn't been to the beach or the Golden Gate Bridge. And let's remember that San Francisco is seven by seven miles. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, it's it was a really great feeling when we're taking kids across the Golden Gate Bridge and they say, I've never actually done this before. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought was unique about City of Dreams was not just the one-on-one mentoring, but the experiential learning events, getting the kids out of their neighborhood and showing them that this great life exists um, out there that you should go experience, and maybe that gives them a hope to go you know, do that later on in life. And really taking them out of their comfort zones. I mean, you know, taking them horseback riding mm-hmm. or rock climbing. Some of them would, you know just naturally like hop on the horse and you know or climb the wall but a lot of other kids um i guess like any kids they didn't know how to react there was a lot of fear there so in your role as city of dreams i know you put on a lot of different events fundraisers and got connected to a lot of people in that space is that what gave the idea for urbanity events you know i'd been thinking about entrepreneurship for a long time and I just hadn't done it and I was even part of this women's entrepreneur group and I was interested in this world um, not because I didn't like nonprofit but because I knew I had it in me to create something um, something big that was my own and that empowered me as a woman to to take charge of every minute of my life work on something I care about um, have my voice heard and be taken seriously and utilize my strongest set of skills so I was like all right this is one of my values. What do I want to do? And I'm like, do I open a bed and breakfast or a spa or a franchise? <laughs> and I was like, well, that sounds fun, but it's not meaningful to me. Right. And so then I looked at my skill sets and I decided that um, I, um, I wanted to be an event production. I wanted to, I was good at connecting the dots, connecting people and making things happen. And something I've learned about myself is that I can't not, not take action Mm -hmm. um, in sort of every aspect of my life. And so I started working on women's events and that was meaningful to me because I was highlighting them, um, recognizing them in a space, which is technology, where there are traditionally few women um, recognized 
So that's where I started. And I started kind of slow. I was sort of a wuss. I (laughs) took on, you know, like one client at a time. And the reason was because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, um, all you have is your reputation in in my opinion. And so, um, and then I decided to jump in a little bit further because I was like, all right, I gotta make a living out of this thing. So I, so what, what, what was your first event that you put on? Do you remember that? I think it was called um, like Women Rock or something. Okay. <laughs> and it was down at like a, I don't know, a Joie de Vivre hotel in the peninsula. And we had probably, I don't know, 200 women there. And we were uh, awarding women for their work in the technology space. And I loved it. I just remember at the end of the night feeling so fulfilled and so inspired and I'd met really incredible women. Great. Yeah. Okay. And so then you really said you started to ramp it up and make it bigger. How'd you do that? So I just jumped in and I took on multiple clients at once. I was thrown into tech full force. I found myself um, surrounded by ideas people who inspired me to immerse myself further in this world um you know that i'd been living in silicon valley technology um, for years but i really knew nothing about Mm -hmm. uh, because i was so focused on nonprofit. and so the types of events that i did um, there were pitch events product launches speaker series and conferences one in particular that i really enjoyed was called future energy and it was all about um clean tech and energy. And so you can picture a panel of um, judges or investors on stage. We did one, um, this was out of New York, and uh, we did two here on the West Coast, one at Stanford and one in San Francisco. And uh, so yeah, it's kind of like think Shark Tank, you got some investors on stage, they're probably not as mean as like Mark Cuban. (laughs) Um, And then folks in the audience and their guys up there pitching these really great clean tech and energy ideas. I really enjoyed that. I um, have worked on a conference called FailCon. I've done some product launches. And um, my role mainly these days is sponsorships and partnerships. Um, And that's where I've gotten away from like the logistics side of things, which is something I actually don't really enjoy that much and get to work more on the Um, partnerships and and sponsorships side. And so when you say now you're more focused on sponsorships and partnerships, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I, you know, when you have an event, you um, are promoting it. So there's folks like um, the media you're partnering with. And so there's a lot of give and take there. Um, And you kind of want to make that relationship mutually beneficial. So with sponsorships, for example, I work on a conference called the Lean Startup Conference, and our theme is learn from entrepreneurs. So we believe that entrepreneurs can learn from each other. Um, Lean Startup is actually a method for developing businesses and products that involves um, hypothesis-driven experimentation, um, iterative product releases, and validated learning. Um, So our whole idea is that, um, and this was really... um, Eric was the person who coined a lot of these terms. But if people invest their, Eric Rees, that is, if people invest their time in this um, stuff early, they can reduce the the market risks and sidestep the need for large amounts of 
early funding that might end up in failure. So simply put, um, all of that means make sure if, they're, if you're starting a company, make sure there's a problem you're actually trying to solve, um, that people will buy it, and um, do that before you build something and spend a shit ton of money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the focus of all of this lean startup stuff was originally with um, high tech companies. Um, but even before that, I guess I should say, the origin was actually in the manufacturing industry, and that dates back like decades and decades. Um, and so I work with um, Eric Rees, um, who I mentioned really led this movement, and Sarah Milstein, um, and they've really helped grow the movement into other sectors, and that's government, education, hardware, nonprofit. Um, and so where I come in is we're not strictly working with startups. Um, there is a huge focus um, from established companies who are smart enough to start training their people um, on these entrepreneurial practices. And um, we can call them entrepreneurs, we can call them mm -hmm. corporate innovators, um, or whatever. But this includes um, Fortune 1000 to Fortune 500 companies who are saying, we not only want to align ourselves with innovation, we want to stay cool and we want to stay relevant. Um, and we know these little guys can come in and smash us if we don't continue to innovate. So my job with our partners is to listen to their goals, whether they're a small startup or a very established company, and um, figure out if there's a way that um, they can reach our audience that would help maybe their marketing goals, or maybe they want to send folks to the conference to come and learn all of these different lessons. And so it's this... Um, really in-depth conversation where I get to talk to these people about um, a lot of the challenge they're facing. Um, it could be, you know, product managers. It could be um, executives. It could be a team of 200 people from all over the world that they want trained on these principles. And so then I figure out how, um, by reaching our global community, they could work. Um, we could work together to accomplish some of their goals. Okay. The uh, the lean startup principles. Do you know is that based on the lean manufacturing or lean sigma um, methodology? Yeah, so um, in the manufacturing industry, I mean, they've been practicing this stuff since, what is it, like the 20s? Right. And you, you probably know. Uh, yeah, we uh, use it a lot of work. Okay. I mean, so I know a lot about lean manu manufacturing. You know, Toyota started that like many years ago. Exactly. Yeah, I remember talking to a guy last year from Toyota um, because we work with them as well. Um, and we were walking around on Knob Hill, and he um, was what it called one of the old school guys um, who was really sharing some of his thoughts on um, his work in relation to what we were doing with the conference. But yeah, it all stemmed through that. And then um, it's when Eric Rees applied it to um, the high tech you know, industry is where um, it really took off as this movement for not just um, folks in tech, but for these other sectors that I mentioned, government, um, nonprofit, education, hardware, and more. Yeah. Yeah, my experience is once you get trained on lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, it's hard to go back and do business any other way because um, it just seems so obvious the way that things should be done. Yeah. yeah, it's developed this like we hate to use it, but it's almost this cult following where, um, you know, people are so enthusiastic about it and it's only gaining momentum. And that's a good thing, in my opinion. Right. So when you first started, I imagine you were the only employee. 
for Urbanity Events? Yeah, so it's it's me. Um, it's a sole proprietorship. And then I have a few contractors I can pull in for various types of events. Um, and uh, I, mean, I love it. I love the... Um, I, I like being an entrepreneur for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of them is I get to work remotely. Um, and yeah. so I can see family and, and friends and travel when I want to travel. And um, I, you know, I get to go to Dublin in a couple months. And this year I was in New York and the Caribbean twice and Sicily and Mexico. And like, you know, I just, I feel very, very fortunate to be in a position where, um, I have this opportunity to um, work and travel and, um, yeah, be able to get things done. I saw this recent Facebook post of yours. Oh, God. You mentioned somebody. You had a picture with um, Starla Sereno. Am oh, I saying her name right? Mm-hmm. And you said she was a, a mentor and now friend and that she showed you what it meant to be fearless. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? So uh, I, when I first started thinking about, um, really thinking about entrepreneurship, I heard of this women's group. She had just started it, and it was called like Fearless Women Entrepreneur Network. And so I went to this meeting, and I met this incredible group of women. It was probably about a dozen ladies, and um, it was led by Starla. And she was she was in like New York and she was in the finance world and then she moved to San Francisco and she said, you know, this really isn't for me anymore. And so she decided she wanted to help women pursue their dreams. And that's exactly what she did. We met every week. We pitched our ideas to each other. We went through them. Um, she had a team of coaches that we could talk to. And... Um, she helped me realize that like this sort of thing like I mean I looked you know I look around the streets of San Francisco and every street there's like one two three businesses I'm like if y'all could do it I could do this too and she's really the woman that helped me realize that and she just had so much confidence in me probably more confidence than I had in myself um, and so she and I were very close, um, and she was like a mentor for, I'd say, about a year. And then things picked up for me, and we sort of lost touch. But recently, um, we've uh, gotten back in touch and have become very close friends. And she's somebody, it's really nice to have somebody to share all of these um, moments with, the, the good ones and the stressful ones. Right. Okay. So I would imagine that um, the time you spend at an actual event is pretty small compared to all of the time spent in preparation for an event. Um, so that would make me think that event day must be pretty special. Um, or maybe there's some extra ad- adrenaline on that day. Is it, is it, is it like, do you feel like it's a game day uh, <laughs> when do. you wake up that morning? I do. Having grown up um, as an athlete, uh, I would say that's a really great way to put it as game day. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I've had people tell me so many people tell me to the point where it's kind of weird, like Heather, you just seem so calm, you know, in all the chaos that's going yeah. on, you seem really calm. And I don't really know where that comes from actually. <laughs> Cause you don't feel calm inside. No, I feel pretty 
pretty calm inside. I mean, my adrenaline's going, but I, I just think I have this way. Maybe it was because I worked with the kids at City of Dreams because right. you always were on stage, right? And so you always had to appear calm. Or, you know, I was a ballet dancer for a long time. So, you know, while your like, body is working really hard, you need to make it look really easy, right? Right. So um, I've been lucky in that way. But, uh, no, I mean, game day, event day, um, we prepare so much in advance that really there's always going to be some fires to put out but um it's not i don't find it that stressful to be honest okay it's exciting so at city of dreams you had a tremendous impact on the community you know gave a lot back and probably gave more back than most people do i would say in life but at the same time did you still have any guilt about leaving the nonprofit sector and kind of going into this, hey, I want to start a business now and make some money. Oh God, yeah. I mean, tons of tons of guilt. It was very weird. It's like I had a hole in my heart. So, I mean, but life to me is more than a job. It's, it's a way of life. Like, I'm a pretty independent spirit. Um, I need leeway in doing things my own way. My life is filled with goals and achievements and things I just want to tackle. Um, and so while I can incorporate incorporate a lot of meaning into these events that I'm doing. Maybe it's um, scholarship programs for folks who would otherwise not be able to afford to attend, um, bringing students um, to come and learn and that sort of thing. There's kind of a hole in my heart. And so that's when I was like, all right, I need to find something else to support this value that I have. And so um, that's when I decided to become a board member for the Global Lives Project. And the Global Lives Project is a nonprofit organization here in San Francisco, and we build a library of human life experience. So it's essentially um, recording people from all over the world, um, and it is 24 hours in, in, in their life. Um, from the time they wake up to the time they wake up the next morning. I mean, it's a full 24 hours. And the the goal behind it is to um, promote global and cultural empathy. Um, we developed, um, the organization worked really hard with um, Stanford and some other folks to develop a curriculum um, for any age student, um, maybe students who wouldn't necessarily be able to travel um, so that they can sort of experience other cultures and um, what kids their age are doing um, in other countries. And, you know, it could be something as simple as like, you know, they're walking to school, like they're brushing their teeth in the morning. Um, and so it's something that I did for, I think I was involved with Global Lives for about three or four years. And um, they just did a new series of shoots, 10 different shoots from around the world. And the theme is transportation. Okay. Um, so look out for that one. Yeah, it made me think about, I just got back from this trip to Kilimanjaro. Oh. And we had all of these porters and guides taking us up the mountain and we didn't spend very much time at all like getting to interact with the porters but I remember thinking like how different their life must be than my day-to-day life and I and I wondered what their I mean exactly what this is doing what their what a day in the life of a porter would be you know when they're not on the mountain when they're back like in town relaxing and uh so that's what I thought of when I saw this video do you, from the videos that you've seen, um, are you surprised at how different 
people's lives are than yours? Or is it the other spectrum where you're surprised at how much similarity there is between people that are halfway across the world? I think for me personally, it was the other spectrum, like how similar it is. Right. Um, you know, because I think I relate to people on a level where it's um, more about like their interactions with other people and how they just like, I don't know, are themselves. And so I'm watching them interact like a child interacting with, you know, his parent yeah. or a sister and brother playing, um, you know, making toys out of nothing. Like we've probably all done that kick the can kind of thing. So, um, for me, it was really more about the similarities and that was very fun. Yeah. Do you have any favorite videos that they've produced? Oh gosh. There was one, um, it was uh, a young woman in a wheelchair and it went through her entire day. And, um, it was, that was kind of like, I guess the other end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. where I guess I'd never put myself in that position. And so, um, it was like all the little challenges she faced on a daily basis. And um, it's things like that that um, really opened my eyes to, you know, just how um, how lucky I am with all the simplicities of life. And, you know, right. I walked to your house. I live, you know, it's a half hour walk away and I walked through this beautiful city. I didn't have to think about the massive hills that I climbed on the way here. If I were in a wheelchair, that would have been a whole different story. Right. Okay, let's talk about Adoptful. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, you know, through these events in the world of technology, I'm surrounded by these really inspiring people who are building all these great products and services. And, you know, I am someone who, um, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm just addicted to learning. And so if I don't know something, like, I want to know it. And so it was like, I joined an accelerator, an early stage accelerator, because I wanted to learn more about um, product development and validating ideas and experimentation and all this stuff instead of just talking to other people about them doing it. And so um, through this, I, of course, wanted to come up with my own idea to work on. And so I looked at the world around me and um, I said, you know, there are 22,000 kids dying each day due to poverty. Um, You know, there are millions of orphans in the world. There are half a million, you know, kids here in the U.S. in the foster care system. And so I thought, um, this is a problem. And what can be done to um, help solve it? The industry, the adoption industry, is pretty disorganized. It's kind of old. There hasn't been a lot of really quality research done um, nationally or globally in many, many years, God, probably a decade. And so it's um, daunting. But I came up with this idea of Adoptful, um, and it's sort of two-part. Um, one part that I am working on now where um, so the idea is to make it easier for people to um, find reputable adoption agencies and lawyers and other types of providers because um, four out of five people are just dropping out of the initial process they're interested and then it's either expensive or confusing they're overwhelmed by it so they just drop out so that's four out of five potential parents four out of five potential kids that could in fact have been adopted And so I 
um, we're in the midst of creating this, what I call a decision-making tool. And so um, think about like eHarmony or something where you <laughs> answer a series of questions and at the end you're like, well, what is this thing gonna tell me? Right. And so it's not like we're matching you with a kid at the end, but we're saying based on your income, on your personal situation, your age, you know, if you're married or not, all of these different variables, um, this is what adoption means to you. Um, if you want to adopt a child within one year, this is the route you probably want to go. Um, these are the providers you can use. And so it's the decision-making tool that almost kind of gives you a, a personalized profile. And then to take it one step further um, in the future, if possible, I would like to have that backend database where it would be like that algorithm, algorithmic matching um, with providers. And, um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's the vision. You know, you've been pretty heavily involved in the tech and startup scene now, you know, at least for the last five years, you know, especially with your work at Urbanity, Urbanity Events. How have you seen that industry change and uh, how, is, how have you seen that impact San Francisco in that time? Yeah, so I moved here in 2005 and I really wasn't involved in technology space whatsoever until about, I guess, four and a half years ago or so. And most of all, I've noticed the city change. And that's not just because, you know, there's more people, um, but there's more traffic. The, you know, rent has gone up. Um, it's not really an affordable place to live. Part of me thinks like San Francisco is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Um, this was bound to happen. <laughs> Um, but it's happening in a, in a way that I can empathize with some of the community who is struggling with it. Um, I find myself struggling with it sometimes because, um, you know, there, maybe there is some media hype around um, what's been going on. Um, but the fact is, a, a lot of us struggle to uh, afford to remain in the city, even people that are in tech. Um, I can think of people who have been dealing with, you know, some of this LSAC stuff and um, whose rent just keeps going up and up and up. And I do have friends that have moved out of the city. And what are we going to do when the folks that are, you know, um, helping the, keep the city going um, in a lot of these industries, say the food industry for one, um, they can't afford to live here. And so there where did it all begin you know was mm -hmm. it because the mayor said twitter <laughs> move into <laughs> south of market and we'll give you a tax break i mean right. there was this big turning point i think where all of this happened and i don't know that it was in the best interests of san francisco and um the culture and you know the people and and the natives that you know are from here i'm not sure um so it's i've definitely seen a change and um, as, as exciting as the world of technology is, um, it's definitely, in my opinion, changed the, the feel of San Francisco. So you live in North Beach? Yeah, I, well, I say North Beach. I guess it's technically Telegraph Hill, but I'm a half a block from all the North Beach craziness, and it just sounds so much cooler to say North Beach. Right. How do you like it there? <laughs> I love it. I've lived there since 07. And, um, or maybe 08, yeah, 08. And uh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the city. Why is that? It feels like a neighborhood. I remember when I first moved to the Outer Richmond, I'd be walking around and I'd say, hi, hello, hi there. 
And people just look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I go to North Beach and I walk around and I go to my coffee shop. And, you know, even if I don't know people personally, you know, we see each other enough that we say hello, maybe a little bit of small talk. You know, we know some of our, our neighbors and it just it feels good. I've lived right. in, it's the third neighborhood I've lived in and it's my favorite. Right. When I first moved here, sometimes I would take my like lawn chair out on the sidewalk and just sit there. And read the paper and like drink coffee and people would walk by me like I was the absolute craziest person (laughs) on the street. They had never seen that in their whole life. Yeah. Apparently, if you want to make friends in the city, you need a dog. Yeah. Some people will talk to you. That's true. (laughs) So what's some of your favorite spots in your hood? Oh, there's so many. I have favorite spots in my neighborhood. Um, It's an old Italian neighborhood, first of all. Um, in fact, I just found out that they're building a permanent piazza at the bottom of my street, um, at some point. Uh, but I would say my favorite spots are take my laptop over to Cafe Roma. Um, and there is, there's an older generation of Italian guys that hang out there every morning. You can overhear their conversations about current events. They say some hilarious stuff. Um, it gets rowdy when their soccer game's on. Um, I also like a restaurant called Sodini's and it feels like your Italian aunt, I'm not even Italian, like your Italian aunt is serving your dinner. I mean, it's just so cozy and the food is delicious comfort food. Yeah. So Cafe Aroma is actually a special spot for me too. When I first moved here, I came here for like a week to look for apartments and uh, I remember picking out my spot and I needed some place with Wi-Fi to like fill out my application and do all of that. And I found Cafe Roma and I just sat in there for like an hour taking care of that work. And so every time I go in there, it reminds me of like that moment, like moving here and like mm-hmm. how excited I was nostalgic. to like move here. <laughs> and I, I went there for um, to get a coffee the morning that North Be- or that I'm sorry, Italy played France, mm-hmm. I believe, in the World Cup. And it was like a bar. It was buzzing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was jam packed with people. So well, I love that place. Tony is great. You know, there've been times where I'm sitting there and he's like, we just made some sangria here. Have a glass. Or, Try this new dessert. <laughs> yeah, like, sure. I'll be your guinea pig. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, other spots I like, I really like Tosca. Okay. Um, it's kind of an institution. They've over the years, they've played host to a lot of politicos and muckety mucks and even movie stars. And, I have a story where um, Von Walker, you might remember however many years ago when Judge Von Walker made a famous ruling on um, Prop 8. And I happened to be at Tosca that very evening and my husband introduced me to him. And um, I don't really go gaga over famous type people, but my husband will forever tease me for telling Judge Walker that I'm a big fan of your work, (laughs) is what I said. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So there's Tosca. Um, Specs Adler Museum is near Tosca, and it really captures that. Um, it's a bar, and it captures that sort of beatnik spirit of San Francisco. A lot of artists hang out there, and after a few strong drinks, I find myself purchasing random napkin art and fun little paintings I now have around my house. So that's a, a really cool one. There's also um, Cafe Trist, which is um, a block from my house. And that is where a lot of the eccentric um, neighborhood locals hang out. Um, 
back in the day, writers like Jack Kerouac used to write there, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola wrote a lot of the screenplay for The Godfather while, while sitting there, so that's a really fun one. Yeah, I heard that place was the first place to serve espresso on the West Coast. Really? Have you ever heard that fact? Yeah. I didn't know that. I can, I can fact check for yeah. you. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also some staples I really like, like Comstock. Um, they have great cocktails and they have live music, kind of old timey feel um, with good drinks and food. There's Vesuvio's, which is a bar. I recommend sitting upstairs. That's on Columbus and you can see all the buzz going out, going on out on the streets. Right. Uh, some of my favorite restaurants there's a new one called fairy plaza seafood on washington square park they have a great lobster sandwich and they have these things called an oyster shooter so go in there order the oyster shooter there's nothing like it yeah i've walked by that place it looks really cool and then i'd say outside of north beach i have some spots too okay um i really like Bix, which is a super old school um, restaurant and bar. They have a live uh, pianist and um, they have singing. It's great for when parents are in town, take them there. That's sort of like the North Financial District area. Um, there's a c- cigar bar. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. Great patio. Yeah. Hard to find a place to smoke a cigar um, in San Francisco, but this is a good one. And then... Um, you know, for those days after work where it's nice out and you want to get a drink outside, I really like Pier 23. Um, and that is, uh, it's kind of like the ugly stepsister of like maybe Americano or something. It's like mm-hmm. less the financial district crowd right. and more like the zany sort of like <laughs> right. mix of tourists and, and locals. So I really like that one. Yeah, I like I like. Bix. I've been in there for dinner once, and I feel like I'm going back in time a little bit um, when I go in there. It just has such this, like, um, 60s era, like, there could be some jazz band, like, playing music and, like, dancing and just this grand restaurant. Yeah, like Boardwalk Empire kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I liked it. Totally. What about, um, do you like Tony's Pizza? In North Beach? Love Tony's Pizza. Yeah. Tony's is one of my all-time favorite places in the entire city. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just the atmosphere. I mean, it's great pizza, but whenever I go away for a trip, I'll usually eat at Tony's like one of my last nights, and then when I get back, like within a week, I'll go there. I, I, I just love like going in, sitting at the bar, having a few beers and eating pizza there, and then Tony himself is like, there a lot walking around yeah and if and you have a big group you can just throw your num- number on the list yeah go to a bar nearby and then they'll call you when it's ready yeah and Great it's setup. right and it's one of these rare places i think where um locals and tourists like mix together in harmony you know um i find like people from san francisco tend to like want to avoid the tourist spots a lot but every time i've been in there there'll be like somebody from wisconsin to my right and then there'll be some local neighborhood person to my left so it's a mix I, that like works you, um don't mind the tourists i actually um one of my favorite things to do is walk down to fisherman's wharf mm-hmm. um on my walks that i take sometimes 
because it's so nice to be around happy people. Yeah. They're all in a great mood. They're experiencing our city, many of them, for the first time. I go down and, you know, take a walk. I got a buddy down there who... Um, he has a, a boat and he takes tourists out on it. And so if it's like after 3 p.m., say, hey, Daryl, you know, how's it going? And he says, come down here and have some wine with me. And we'll talk <laughs> about his fishing days or crab season. And um, he'll show me his mixtapes. I mean, it is just I love the wharf and I, I really enjoy being around the tourists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I try to remind myself of that when I'm on the Golden Gate Bridge. I do a lot of biking and I'll bike to Marin and back. And at one time, I mean, sometimes it can be so frustrating um, biking through all the crowds. But then I try to remind myself that, like, there's people there getting their pictures taken, that this is the highlight of their trip. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a moment they're going to remember for, like, their whole life. So, I mean, people fly from all over the world to, like, get on that bridge and, like, have their picture taken. I've never taken for granted the views. I mean, just walking to your house, you know, I stopped on the top of green, and I'm looking at, you know, Alcatraz and the bay, and I'm sitting here right now, like, looking at the Golden Gate Bridge on a beautiful, sunny Saturday. And I, yeah, every day I appreciate it, and I don't think that would ever go away. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that one. So let's say that you... um I've been out of town for a long time, maybe for business, and uh, you come back on a Friday, and so it's your first Saturday in San Francisco, and so you really want to have just your ideal San Francisco day that day. How? What would you do? Take me through it. Um, I would have brunch at um, Cafe Divine, which is on Washington Square Park, so um, Will and I would grab paper and we would get our coffees and order the quiche or whatever (laughs) sit there and um you know enjoy washington square park take a walk around it after we're done um then we would hopefully get together with some friends it could be like playing some bocce ball in the park maybe we would you know go for a hike up in Marin, maybe would take the ferry over to Tiburon and have lunch at Sam's or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I would come back into the city and come back to North Beach. Maybe one of my favorite bands, Midnight North, um, that my friends are in, would be playing in my neighborhood, which they've done from time to time. And that would be, yeah, that would be my perfect little Saturday. Sounds like a good day. People here live pretty extravagant lives in that, you know, they travel so much and they're always doing cool stuff. But I think when it comes down to it, people just love their simple, like, neighborhood spots. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about living here is that I can just, like, pop down the hill, like, walk up my door, pop down the hill, and, like, stop at one of my favorite neighborhood spots on Union there. My dad says when he comes to visit, he says, I just love getting up at six in the morning. I walk down your hill. I grab my cappuccino in the paper and like life is good. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. What I've learned about Heather McGough is that she is a person that takes action. She does things. A lot of us have great ideas and we have things that we say we want to go do. But unfortunately, too many times, it stops there. But when Heather has an idea, she does it. She's a doer, and she's inspired me to do more. To start with, I'm going to reach out to my mentee Antonio and try to reconnect with him. 
And I'm also going to see how I can get involved with the Global Lives Project. That just sounds like such a great organization with an exciting idea. And I think next week, I'll try one of her recommendations in North Beach. Maybe Sodini's. I've never been there, but it sounds delicious. I hope she's also inspired you to do more. If she has, go do it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, do me a favor. Get on iTunes and give it a rating and leave a review. That will help us get the show out to more listeners. If you have any feedback or ideas for a future show, send me an email. It's frank at sfpeoplepodcast.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter. The handle is at sfpeoplepodcast. Until next time, this is Frank Garza for San Francisco People.